Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be used for investment advice. Thank you, Connor Ryan, for the introduction to our guest today, Joe Welsh. Joe is the founder and CEO of In Good Taste. In Good Taste is a wine company that creates RTD wine flights that allows you to taste your way through wine country. We discuss why he left tech to start a wine business, how he thinks about his target demo and what his product is trying to accomplish, his pivoting throughout COVID and retail expansion. Without further ado, here's Joe. Joe, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. This is uh, we've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So excited we could finally make some time. This is great. This is great. Talk to you about like your early career. You started off in tech. You worked for Twitter, DoorDash, SpaceX. Was the plan always to start a wine company? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, that, I was just thinking five steps ahead. It's three D <laughs> chess. You start Twitter and then you go to wine. Uh, no, I never, never in the million years thought I was going to end up starting a wine company. I, I loved the idea of tech, but I didn't really know kind of what I was getting into. Uh, you know, going to school in the Bay Area, tech is what you do. You try and make your way up and, you know, fight your way to the big IPOs. And I thought that was my path. And it was fun. It was definitely exciting. It was kind of the glory days of, of tech, as you will. Twitter just IPO'd. Things were going crazy. But what I really fell in love with, the, the only thing I really took from it that I fell in love with was this idea that you can kind of prove your own worth. There's a lot less waiting around like there is in uh, banking or consulting where you pay your dues, you do your years, and you move up the ladder. Tech, especially early tech, gives you the opportunity to just do whatever you want. Uh, so I love that. And the things that you know I didn't quite love about tech were mostly on the product side of things. I'm not an engineer. I, I like being able to physically hold things. And it's a, it was something that was shared by a lot of people in the industry. So um, when I left SpaceX, I wasn't really sure where I was going to go. Um, you know, I, I built the skill set to be an executive, I thought, but didn't know if anyone was going to hire somebody with, you know, four years of experience as an executive. So figured I might as well just do it myself and ended up working a harvest up in Napa right after after leaving SpaceX. So I wanted to decompress and really figure out what my next move was going to be. And when I came back to LA, I had developed a pretty serious, you know, wine, wine habit, wine, uh, wine love and hobby, if you will. And that's an expensive hobby to have for somebody who doesn't have a job. So I started learning more and more about it and learned how big the industry was. And what really, I guess, kind of moved me to starting a wine company was I was living with five roommates as one does in Los Angeles and they were all heathens. So I didn't really want to share, you know, good wine with, with my heathen roommates. I wanted to, I wanted to not waste my money on them. So I would have these, you know, $30, $40 bottles that I'd never opened up, never, ever opened up. And I would go to the grocery store and buy crappier wine to drink by myself because I wasn't going to be able to have a full bottle that night. I was just going to have a glass. And it, it triggered this thought of, you know, I think about wine by the glass, but why can't I buy wine by the glass? And that kind of was sort of an aha moment that was like, okay, you know, everything's thought of in terms of I want a glass of wine, but I'm buying this and then 
in a very spoilable large format, there might be an opportunity here and things snowballed pretty quickly from there. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it went fast. Why did you think that like wine by a glass, like this theory that maybe could work for you and as well as, you know, well, how it could work with other people too. And how did you kind of formulate that idea and kind of craft it? Once I had kind of an insight and started exploring, you know, I, I didn't know people made money on wine before this, right? I, I didn't realize how big of a market or big of an industry it was. And I'm sure you've had like a lot of people on the on this podcast who will go in and they'll talk about their industry in a way that where they say, you know, there's these giant old conglomerates and they don't do any innovation. And so we're the ones coming in and we're going to innovate everything. That's a very common way to approach, you know, a startup. When I had this insight, I started learning more about the wine industry and realized that at a glance, it looked like the, that that was true, that there were these massive conglomerates with little innovation. But when you started to pry back the the, the folds and the, the pages a little bit, they actually had quite a bit of innovation and they had tried a lot of business models. They had you know done craft labels like the beer industry had well before that. So they actually had they were actually several steps ahead of a lot of other industries. So when I decided I wanted to try and you know essentially ex- move into this industry and, and make an impact here, I had to find an angle in. So the fragmentation of consumption started to be more and more the obvious route in. It was a differentiator that was missing. And it was one of the only things that like the beer industry had done exceptionally well, even the liquor industry had done exceptionally well. Really all consumer packaged goods have multiple sizes, multiple shapes, and fragmented consumption. Wine was really the only one that didn't. And so the more I saw that, the more it became very clear that, okay, if customers and consumers think by the glass, but can't buy by the glass, this could be the way into the market and you can then expand and learn from there. But you need a you know a wedge in the door to actually get off the ground, I guess. So what were kind of the first steps once you were, you know, pretty all in when it came to this insight and this idea and you know just how you were thinking about wine. It's it's, you know, what's my next glass instead of, you know, what's my next bottle, so to speak. And what were I guess like the beginning moments that you had to do when it comes to like building out your supply chain and and what have you? Oh, uh, we didn't think about supply chain for a while. So we, we made colossal mistakes early on. Uh, my first step was bringing on my co-founder, uh, Zach Weinberg. And um, we had known each other since high school, but really became close actually at DoorDash. We were both on the launch team together. And we kind of just trust each other because when you're launching cities, you're literally by yourself. You know, DoorDash gives you a budget, you go set up the operation, and then you move on to the next one. So he was competitive, he was hungry, and um, you know, didn't know much about wine, just like me. I thought I did, but didn't know a lot. Uh, the first thing that we had to do, though, was design the packaging and design the format. Uh, because there was some, you know, there are mini bottles of wine out there. There is canned wine out there. But we thought in order for people to really buy into this idea of a good glass of wine, um, a nice glass of wine every night, you had to improve the way it was being served. I mean, it is an industry of pomp and circumstance where price equals quality. And airplane mini bottles don't scream quality to a customer. Canned wine does not scream quality. It may or may not be true. I mean, there are plenty of good canned wines out there. I know Maker Wines does a great job. There's a bunch of Santa Barbara wineries doing great wines. But overcoming consumer perceptions is very difficult, especially in an industry where they're already intimidated. So we figured if we could make it look as beautiful as possible, that would at least get us the trust of the customer to try the wine in a mindset that it was going to be good. And so we went out and designed our bottles uh, really as kind of the first step. Um, and that involved, you know, buying everything off the shelves that we possibly could, uh, grinding down bottles with with Dremel saws and diamond tip Dremels to try and shape them in the way that we thought would 
be attractive. And then once we had that mold, really sending it out and getting it manufactured. What we didn't realize is that when you design your own packaging, you should probably make sure that there are bottling lines that can work with your packaging. And we didn't do that. So when we got our first order of glass, I was like, don't worry. Everybody always talks about this thing called co-packing. I'm sure it'll be easy. Wineries can bottle this for us. And we called pretty much every winery in California, any you know alternative package winery in the United States to see if they could fill and cork our bottles at scale. And they all said no. So we very quickly had to start hand bottling just from a keg. And, you know, our winemaker would make the wine, design in the keg, and then we would, you know, drip in a couple of drops at a time, try and eyeball the level and get the product out the door. Uh, and it's not a good way to do things, but it does get product out the door and it can get you to a scale where you can then start to build out a supply chain um, and vertically integrate. But what we didn't realize at the time is that we had embarked on a quest of vertical integration from day one without knowing it. And that's really, really saved us and become one of our strong suits, you know, five years later, but definitely caused a couple broken bones and several calluses uh, later. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Also, like when you were even considering, you know, starting a wine company, they say that, you know, in order to make, how do you make a small fortune in wine? You start with a large fortune um, and then open a winery. Were you at all kind of concerned at all that you could actually make this like a sustainable business? I should say yes. I mean, honestly, my ego said no, which is ironic because my ego said no for the same reason why other people lost money. I, I thought that most people went into wine because of ego. They had a lot of money. They wanted to show off to their friends and they didn't really care necessarily if they made money or not. You know, they could afford to lose money on their winery. It was more of a passion project. So I thought that attacking it from like a, you know, a purely capitalist standpoint and going in with the idea that this is going to be a money-making venture and here's how we're going to tackle, you know, again, making money in premium wine was really a really exciting challenge. And I never really worried that we we wouldn't be able to do it. I should have worried a lot more than I did, but yeah, it didn't come up too much. So after you were, I'm just imagining you with this keg and pumping this keg and then filling up these bottles, these glass bottles of wine. What was the first, I guess, distribution where you kind of giving them out to friends and family and kind of getting like feedback loops on like what they what they thought about the wine? And also what was that process too when it comes to sourcing the grapes and kind of actually producing the wine itself? Was that pretty tricky? The first thing that we did was actually we didn't work from a keg to a bottle. We went from other full bottles into our mini bottles. So our first, our first attempt at any wine concept was to try and be a marketing platform for other wineries. We wanted to repackage their full bottles into our mini bottles. So we had this baby incubation chamber, like literally where you put, you know, either a a sick child or like an injured animal, like it's a perfectly sterile environment. We'd pump it full of nitrogen. We'd have the glove hands and the glove box and we would hand pour a full bottle into our mini bottle in different tasting flights. Terrible business operation, terrible product process, took forever to do anything, but we didn't think that the world needed more brands of wine. We were just trying to expose people to the current brands that existed. And so that supply chain was was easier to source because people had already made the wine and we didn't have the confidence to make our own. But we very quickly realized that it was just so limited across every stage of the business and with all the nuance and legalities around shipping wine, it was going to prevent us from scaling. Um, so when we switched to making our own wines, it became a lot simpler and we were able to bring on 
a fantastic winemaker, uh, Matt Smith, who used to be the wine director at Kendall Jackson for a long time and has done some great work down in Santa Barbara at Sunstone Winery um, and up at his own tasting room in Healdsburg called Grapeseed. And he basically would make the wine for us and say, look, here's how you bottle. And he would go out and source, you know, whether it was barrels from friends and other vintners in the area, or if it was grapes, he would crush them down and try and get it ahead of time. But when you're small and you're just starting out, you generally try and buy what we call bulk wine, which is grapes that have been crushed and fermented into wine. It's a very raw product. It doesn't taste very good. It's the winemaker's job to then filter and finish and style the wine in a way that's appeasing to appealing to customers. And so he would do all that. And because everything was in mini bottles, it actually made supply chain a little bit easier because we were doing mini bottles and variety kits. So you were only getting one quarter bottle of wine per varietal. So if we got a gallon of wine from a supplier, that covered 20 customers. So it gave us a lot of flexibility on where we were getting our product. Let us get a lot of really solid quality out of it. But yeah, when we tried, uh, when we did launch consumer, we, we launched subscription like everybody else. Uh, and it failed spectacularly like everybody else. Um, nobody needed another wine subscription. It was just too much. And we had to, we had to pivot pretty quickly. The big insight we got from it is everyone told us we love the bottles. We love the format. Just stop sending me eight glasses a month. Like I don't. I don't know what to do with all of these and it's really expensive. And so I was like, this model looked so good in Excel. Why don't customers like this? And uh, we had to change everything. <laughs> Talk me through a little bit about how you approached as well the variety kits. Because when I think about like wine, you know, consumers that I know, they usually like, you know, a cab or a Pinot. And that's really kind of like mostly what they drink. Or they'll, or maybe when it's, you know, in the summer, they'll, they'll have a Chardonnay. I mean, I also know Chardonnay drinkers year round. But how did you also kind of approach from the consumer perspective of why a customer would actually like a variety pack? I think there's kind of two things. You know, when, when you're in a grocery store, the challenge with wine is analysis paralysis. Um, again, the world actually doesn't need more brands of wine. There's already 130 per grocery store. You just have no idea what the hell to pick. I mean, it is, it is the worst part of the grocery store. Imagine if there was 130 types of pasta. You would never leave that aisle. Like, it is so ludicrous how many different options there are. And even within Chardonnay, there's 40 different options. So, you know, we, we figured that if the consumer need, the need state was analysis paralysis, how do you solve for that when there's already a lot of brands out there? Just remove the decision. Say, here's a variety kit. You're going to get a little bit of everything and you're going to like most of this. And you know what? You're probably going to find a wine that you didn't think you liked, that you're going to try and take a risk on, and you're actually going to fall in love with. We get these notions of what a Chardonnay is supposed to be. And for the average wine drinker, that's an oaky barrel-aged Chardonnay. That's kind of the traditional chard. But if you age Chardonnay in stainless steel, if you ferment in stainless steel, that wine's going to taste closer to a Sauvignon Blanc than it is to a Chardonnay. So blanket saying that you don't like Chardonnay is, is kind of, you know, it's not necessarily the best way to approach the industry because there's so many different ways to make it. Same with Pinot Noir. You can have it super earthy, um, which some people hate or and some people love, or you can have it super fruity, which is, again, vice versa. So we wanted to push people out of their comfort zone and do it in a way that wasn't going to cost them a lot of money because my, my personal need state as a consumer, and I think as an entrepreneur, you base a lot of your decisions off your own personal need states as a consumer is I was just as worried about a $30 bottle of wine tasting bad than I was wasting it on like the wrong occasion. So I was more, I was probably more scared of sharing it with heathen friends and having them say, this was $30, you paid $30 for this, or buying it for myself, opening up and saying, I actually hate this wine. Like, this is not for me at all. I was more scared about that than like anything else. And so by 
trying to give some exposure earlier on and trying to give exposure more affordably, we thought that it was going to help the customers, again, get out of their comfort zone a little bit, explore a little bit, and also just have more, give them, let them be creative with the product and see what they do with it. No, that's really helpful just in terms of like how your approach and also how you're thinking about consumers enjoying the wine with different flavors. Who would you say was your kind of target demographic when it comes to in good taste? Is it people who already know wine, enjoy wine, or, or people that really want maybe more of an introduction to wine? Yeah, we want to be more of like a gateway wine. Like we want to give, we want to bring you into the industry. I, our theory is that, you know, the millennial generations doing everything later, but eventually all roads from consumption of alcohol lead to wine. Nobody's opening up a white claw with dinner. But, you know, when you've got a fiance, a wife, and you're just sitting down, or a husband, you're sitting down, you still want to feel fun. You don't really want to go pay $20 for a vodka soda at a club, but you still want to have a drink. You're turning to wine. And we think that our, our bet is that that's going to happen more and more frequently sort of with millennials as they do start to settle down a little bit more, which again, they did much later than previous generations. So we want to be there right, welcoming them into the industry, helping them explore and learn something. If you can create that kind of aha moment for a customer where they learn something or they gain some confidence from you as a brand, you're in really good shape. At what point did you actually go out and fundraise? And what was that process like? So the first time we went out for a real fundraising round outside of, you know, friends, family and fools, which was, you know, maybe a hundred grand was, uh, 2019. And it was after we had gotten into 200 hotels. So we had seen some traction here and we had plans on how we could leverage, you know, this hotel channel into something larger. Um, and our plan back then was to go nationwide with several of the larger hotel brands and just keep supporting them and, and, Realistically, it might have limited us from a from a growth standpoint or a pie in the sky standpoint. I wouldn't say it's like this huge dramatic idea. But, you know, we had been beaten down over a couple of years, a couple of pretty hard years, starting in twenty seventeen, of you know no salaries and no real sales to speak of. So we had to try and find you know we had to try and claw momentum back so that we could dream, so that we could think a lot bigger and a lot longer. And it was it was hard. It was hard to raise that first round. We did not get any institutional money whatsoever. We were kind of in this weird state where we had some data to prove out a very specific sales channel, but venture capitalists, rightly so, asked the same questions you did of how is this building your brand? How is this scaling the wholesale? How does this fit my business profile? And we had to say it doesn't. You know, this isn't a billion dollar acquisition company. So I, I get it. Um, we found some excellent angel investors out of Dallas, Texas, who had recently built and sold a company themselves. And uh, they came by our warehouse in uh, Los Angeles at the time. And I'll never forget, we, we used to print our own labels in-house to try and save money, which is a good idea in theory, but we didn't know how to print labels. So they always had this like little white stripe on the edge of the label that looked terrible. And we're trying to make the office look as fancy as possible, as professional as possible. The first thing these guys see when they walk in is this white stripe on the side of the labels that they know is a printing error. And they go, oh, white stripe on the right. Yeah, we had that problem on our product for years. We know how to fix that. And it was right there. I was like, okay, holy crap. Is this what investors are supposed to do? They solve problems here? Like, this is amazing. And the first the first two hours of us pitching them in person was solving the white stripe problem on our labels and getting that calibrated so that we didn't have to deal with it again. And that really just gave us the opportunity. We were such a lean organization that we had funding to expand and actually do actually take a step back and dream a little bit and build our idea out and make it bigger and look at the industry more holistically. 
It's nice when you actually bring on board investors that actually can help you and actually know what they're actually talking about in relation to you know CPG and actually building a brand. So that's um, that's awesome. How are you thinking about you know building your brand during COVID with in good taste? We were f- a little fortunate that we had right after the fundraise round in 2019 had made the decision to launch some sort of e-commerce, and we wanted to launch a variety kit. We had been we wanted our first real consumer-facing product online to be a variety kit for, for all the reasons we talked about earlier, but also because variety kits do really well in beer and there's no such thing as a variety kit in wine. So there seemed to be a market opportunity. There seemed to be an easy kind of purchase and it was something unique that nobody else had online. So we had made that decision in November of 2019 and we're building out a website and you know we had sourced the wine, thankfully, for the first eight wines. And we were in denial about COVID. I mean, January, February... It was like, this isn't going to be that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. It really wasn't until the hotel sales reps just stopped picking up the phone or kept responding with, I've been furloughed. There's nothing I can do to, to help you here that we realized probably in, in like late February, I think it was February 22nd, we realized like, oh crap, this has gone forever. And we had had this, you know, we'd been working on a website, but it was a full build out website to address the things you just talked about brand, really just like a fancy, proper looking CPG website, we said, screw that, scrap that idea and set up a landing page with one product, our California wine mixer, that was eight different varietals from California. That was all it was. There was no homepage to product page. It was homepage and checkout. And we launched that in four weeks on March 25th. And I think the first month it was live, we did $150,000 in sales uh, from that product page. And we were hoping to do 10000 a month to like try and avoid, you know, keep the team intact and like reduce burn. Like we were hoping for just, we can ride this out. And uh, thankfully the ride out strategy wouldn't have worked and <laughs> didn't need to work because uh, we were able to find some success pretty quickly. That's amazing. I'd imagine that the rest of the strategy for 2020, uh, considering where the world's at, it was really just hunkering down and doubling down on, on your e-commerce business, right? Yeah, yeah. We immediately... Like really, as soon as February 22nd, we told our hotel sales reps, we've got to find something else for you to sell because hotels aren't coming back for a long time. And so they started targeting tech companies and larger organizations to do virtual tastings. We were we moved very quickly into that space as it was growing. How did you organize your, your virtual tastings and kind of what were the purpose? How did you get people excited about virtual tastings back in 2020? So it was, it was kind of right product, right place where people were coming to the conclusion of like, okay, we need to hang out with each other. This is going to, we're in for the long haul here, right? We're not going to the office. They were looking for an experience and a virtual wine tasting kind of inherently made sense for them, but we were better positioned than anybody in the industry because we were small format. So we were beating everybody on price. And what we, uh, what we offer, what we still offer to this day is the virtual tasting is free. You just have to make sure at least seven people show up. So if you get a group of seven, you all buy a kit, we'll host you for the virtual tasting. And we just made them, we made them a party. We spent a lot more time focusing on how to have fun on a virtual tasting than reading a text script again about terroir and, and things like that. So it was, it was way more casual and way more interactive than I think a lot of the other attempts. And that made people feel relaxed. It let them have fun. We, we really let the group dictate how we would interact in this tasting. If they wanted something super formal, we could do it. But more often than not, especially 2020, this is groups of friends and family who hadn't seen each other in a long time. And a lot of times you just had to shut up and let them drink wine because that's really what they wanted to do. They didn't want to be lectured. They just wanted an excuse to get together online. 
Um, and because we had eight different wines in a variety kit, it seemed like a, you know, a really fun way to taste through all these things without wasting full bottles. So we held all, we did all those in house to start. So I, I hosted probably two or three a day. My co-founder hosted probably three or four a day. And it was until our liver said, please hire somebody else that we, uh, we actually just passed around the team and we had a schedule and it was signed up for however many you could and, and make sure they had a good time. That's awesome. That's great. I guess it goes back as well to like your early kind of insight of bringing people together through wine with these variety pack, but doing it in a virtual way, which, you know, at that moment, and I mean, obviously we all remember that in 2020 when like, it was hard to bring people together. I mean, you couldn't, you only really had Zoom and stuff like that. So giving it as an excuse using, you know, in good taste or wine or, or maybe it's, you know, something else as an excuse to actually bring people together. It's much more an event and, and an actual occasion, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we always think in terms of consumption occasions. Why are people drinking wine? In 2020, they were drinking wine because it was a social lubricant, and what we were doing on Zoom was awkward for everybody. Right? <laughs> Nobody had ever done this. I mean, there's been memes and jokes and movies made about how awkward it was, and so having a glass of wine was a little bit, you know, helped loosen people up a little bit. Felt classy. It was something that could ship to 44 states, unlike uh, beer or hard alcohol. And I think people were more open to to try new wines from the comfort of their own home. They were in a familiar setting. They're more likely to push themselves a little bit further or, you know, take a risk when they're sitting back sitting on their sofa hanging out versus all dressed up at a winery in Napa that's, you know, part of this giant extravagant trip. Um, so it's it's making it, you know, as as casual, you know, making luxury as casual as possible, basically. How's your e-commerce business today? I'm just kind of curious because e-commerce penetration is kind of taking a step back than it was maybe during the height of COVID. What are you thinking about right now when it comes to your sales channel mix? So I talked about the the wholesale side, which will go live next year. The other side of the the channel mix is going to be owned retail. So, so we're going to essentially open up urban wineries uh, across the United States um, and really fully bring Napa Valley to the consumer. And um, Part of that decision is because we believe as a business that e-commerce wine only solves so many consumer need, uh, consumer uh, problems, and it's very limited on how many of those you can actually solve. The value that you're creating for a customer selling wine online is capped. Um, and we were fortunate enough to bring on uh, a couple of great investors uh, called Goat Rodeo Capital, um, who come from the industry and gave us some awesome advice that you know they they personally believe that e-commerce wine doesn't really get above $20 million a year in revenue. And that was a good insight because we were, we were struggling, you know, facing diminishing margins of return on marketing costs. We were facing this, this, how do we move from, you know, how do we move past these goals and up to the stratospheres of around, you know, hundred million dollar a year e-commerce business. And we didn't see a very clear or obvious path forward. So the industry as a whole is actually down this year. We'll finish up but definitely not up. We'll definitely not see the uh, the growth rates that we saw in 2020 and 2021. And we're now trying to, you know, I guess double down on the direct to consumer side of the industry, but recognizing that direct to consumer doesn't just mean buy something on a website. It means I own a retail spot. I can create those consumption occasions. I can create that experience around wine and still sell it directly to you, the customer. Thanks for explaining your vision. Also, huge fan of Carlton Fowler. He's been on the show and huge fan of uh, Go Rodeo. They're, they're awesome. How are you thinking about managing this? Because you obviously have the product, you have the wine company, but then also you're going to have you know, retail outlets. You're going to have your own, your own distribution. How are you thinking about the overall structure of the company? Because I'd imagine that's a whole kind of different beast to kind of go into. 
It is, but it plays really nice with one another. The hardest parts of e-commerce, especially in alcohol, shipping costs are exorbitant. You have to pay for, you have to pay so much to ship a product. So, you know, the idea for this owned retail actually came from conversations we have with our operations teams on how can we lower shipping costs? You know, what, yeah, so we can, we were going to create fulfillment centers anyways, spend a little bit more and create the experience for the customer. Because if I have to give, you know, FedEx $20 a package, I'd rather give a customer $20 of consumer value to get them to pick up their package. Like, what can I do to get them in and give them a better experience? If I have to spend that money, no matter what, you might as well do it in a way that is beneficial for your consumer base rather than FedEx. So they do play very nicely off each other. And there's been enough precedent of people have sort of seen how owned retail can affect their online sales as well as their wholesale channels. So you've got the Warby Parker and the Allbirds who you know, have been doubling and tripling down on their own retail concepts to the, the point of Warby, you know, when they unfortunately had to go through their layoffs, didn't touch their retail side of the business. They only touched their e-commerce side. And then you've got June Shine, and I was fortunate enough to live down the street from their tasting room in Los Angeles. And it was awesome. It was a party. Everyone loved going to the June Shine tap room. And they did that as a, a way to support their wholesale channels. They wanted to increase their velocity in Los Angeles, so they opened up a tasting room to see what its effect would be on wholesale. So the three channels play very nicely to each other. Organizationally, it's definitely complex, making sure that you're managing all three appropriately. But we've got an excellent team who has run and built companies in this way before uh, in different industries. It also makes sense for In Good Taste, it seems, because really what you're focused about and why you started in good taste, it wasn't to create, as you say, like the best wine, the best shard or, or you know, the best cab. It was really that that overall experience of bringing people together and, and having these things. So, and you can only do that if you kind of own that experience. And the only way to own that experience is to actually have your own, you know, your own bars, your own, your own tasting rooms. So that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. My favorite data point is, uh, we might have discussed this earlier, but have you, do you know who has the most wine club members in the world? Which winery has the most wine club members in the world? You know Gallo? Nope, not Gallo. So instead of being the top four that you'd think, you know, a, a Gallo, a Constellation, yeah. a Prisoner, or being one of these, a, a tech-funded winery like Wink, which has, you know, lots of VC dollars behind it, the company that has the most monthly wine club members is called Cooper's Hawk. And Nobody's really heard of Cooper's Hawk if you don't, if you live on the coasts. It is a restaurant winery concept in rural Chicago that has about 45 locations. And they created a really nice community around wine in areas that really hadn't been approached with wine whatsoever. And they create unbelievable amount of value for their subscribers who are fiercely loyal. And they have half a million monthly subscribers. Uh, they're IPOing next year in the billions. I mean, they, they've, they are the they are the golden poster child for a successful wine startup. I don't know. I can't actually name a wine startup that's been more successful than Cooper's Hawk. And they didn't do it by following the playbook of everybody else of winning on Facebook. You could argue that their e-commerce is actually pretty poor. Their website's a little bit outdated. And they don't have a lot of the tracking that you know modern CPG companies have. But they don't need it because they can create so much value in person to their customer base. And so that's really kind of a, a, a real you know, sort of example for us in how to think about value for consumers. It's not just selling them more wine. It's making sure that they are drinking their wine and using their credits and actually feel like they're a member rather than a wine. You know, they're, they're, they're a member of a community rather than a member of a wine club. It's really interesting about the wine club members, that it's not Gallo or or any of the other 
big wineries out there, but it's actually this one that has maybe like a similar model um, in Chicago. How do you think of well about locations as we're going into, you know, next year and the right neighborhoods that, you know, something like an In Good Taste tasting room would actually make sense and target the appropriate uh, consumer? Yeah, locations, everything. Um, thankfully, you know, my, my co-founder and I have, have somewhat done this before at DoorDash, right? Launching cities was what we did. It's where we felt the most alive, where you have to go in very quickly, understand the social dynamics of the city, understand the logistical dynamics of the city, you know, what the, what the people like to drink, what the people like to eat, how they, how long of hours do they work? Is this a San Francisco where people, you know, live to work? Or is this more of a San Diego where people work to live? Being able to pick all those dynamics and understand those at a local level helps you ingrain yourself with that city so that you don't feel like an outsider from California, you know, trying to trying to come in and, and just make money. I think we've got a lot of advantages going for us that our winery's up in Sonoma, not Napa. We always make that distinction because Napa's pomp and circumstance and Sonoma's the people's Napa. So we, we want to make sure that we're bringing that people's Napa experience to people, not the Napa experience. And and so when we think about the cities that we want to go to, you know, you start at the high level, it's targeting really where I think that the, the bulk of CPG companies should spend more of their time, which is between the coasts, not on the coasts. Uh, Los Angeles is really expensive, but a consumer in Los Angeles is not representative of the United States of America. It's representative of Los Angeles and pretty much only Los Angeles. And so I, I think we're going to go. Uh, I love Ohio. There's a bunch of great cities in Ohio. I, I love Minneapolis. That's one of my favorite cities to visit. Minneapolis in the summer, I argue, is one of the best summer cities in the United States, hands down. Um, and I'm a big guy, so I can take the cold in the winter. Um, so we're going to start there. And then from, from a city standpoint, you then try and break it down a little further and figure out what are the routes people are taking? Where's the walkability the highest? And what are those key anchor stores that you want to place yourselves around? You know, I was, I was sitting down with an investor in Nashville and he was talking about, or he wasn't actually talking. He was ignoring what I was saying, not maliciously, but he was watching every customer walk by and what bags they were holding and trying to think about what's in those bags and where are they coming from? Why did they go to that location? Are they going there to shop? Are they going there to eat? Are they going there to work? And putting yourself in the mind of that consumer, that's how you narrow down your neighborhood and then finally narrow down into your property. Um, and so we'll keep our options open from cities because you never want to get pigeonholed into a bad property in a good city, but you want a good property in a good city. So we'll have a couple options uh, that we're scouting out and vetting right now. Cool. That's awesome. How many are you going to start with in terms of uh, locations? We're looking at two to three next year. A lot of it will depend on wholesale. And again, it's very much a level setting year. It's, it's collect data and test a few hypotheses, see which ones work. And we'll probably do cities where we have no wholesale presence, where it's just owned retail. And then we'll do a city where there is wholesale and owned retail so we can see the uh, effect it has on velocity. It's awesome. It's really cool. Really cool. What do you think is still maybe misunderstood part about the wine business, do you think? I'm someone that hasn't been in it. Maybe it was you didn't understand it before you when you were in tech, before you went into the wine business. What maybe what what, what was maybe one of your biggest learnings? One of the biggest misunderstandings is that concept that you have to start with a large fortune to make a small fortune. There are ways to make money in wine, but you absolutely have to put your ego aside. Like you have to go in understanding that the wine industry has tried a lot of different things. The the subscription model that every CPG company has right now 
is based off of the original subscription, which was a wine club subscription back in the 70s. It was a mail order subscription was the first one was a wine club subscription. So they're actually ahead of the curve in a lot of business models. And so it's very difficult to figure out how to, to find your, your footing. So if you go in with this assumption that it's all these old behemoths, you will lose money very quickly. You really have to respect what the industry has done and what the people have built, both from a quality of product and an experiential standpoint. You could argue owned retail was started by wineries with tasting rooms in Napa, right? Like they, they've got these experiences and they've been doing it for a very, very long time, very successfully. Go in humble and find your angle. And if you spend more time really learning what they've tried and where the opportunity is, you will be infinitely more successful than going in guns blazing. That's awesome. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Call Sign Chaos. Call Sign Chaos is the biography of uh, Mad Dog Mattis, General Mattis, um, who is one of my favorite leaders of all time. And he does a really good job of talking about how he took his his leadership style in the military and translated that into public office and public service even after you know his time as a general. The, the military does a lot of things wrong, but their structure and style of leadership is unbelievably helpful for entrepreneurs because they they give guidelines that can help you grow as your company grows. I think like a weird position for founders is you could be a really good wartime founder where when you're in the, the trenches and you're shipping out product yourself and you're hands-on with everything, that's where you flourish. But as you get money and as your team grows, you have to become a peacetime founder. And that's a hard transition to make. The military leadership structure actually helps you think about how to make that transition and work on your communication because um, you will get to a point as a founder where you're going to sit around and look at your room and say, what the hell am I supposed to be doing today? And hopefully, hopefully you've communicated everything clearly to everybody who works uh, with you and they're handling everything. And then you're just supposed to relax that day because if you can get away with just doing nothing and everything keeps the lights on, you're doing your job at a certain point. Obviously, you can always find more stuff to do, but that is the most important thing is that the ship can run without you as the founder for your business. And I think that's a, yeah, Call Sign Chaos is a really good book. I also knew, uh, no General Mattis personally is a very, very good guy. He was good friends with my, uh, my grandfather. We've gone with him forever. So, um, big fan personally and professionally of Call Sign Chaos. That's awesome. You're the first one to bring up Call Sign Chaos. So I'm really excited to add that to our book list. That's amazing. Joe, this has been such a fun conversation. Thanks again for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. This has been great. Uh, happy to come back anytime and chat wine or chat alcohol in general. It's a great industry. It's big money. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And there you have it. It was such pleasure chatting with Joe. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.